Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Paul Budnitz and Jen Van Dyke, founder and CEO, respectively, of Superplastic, one of the most interesting companies in our portfolio, and I would say in the larger media art landscape. Superplastic is a brand, a company, a vision that has from its inception aimed at being, yes, a proper business, but one that maintains its sense of self. And I'm very excited to talk to both of you today because I think that you can serve as an inspiration for founders looking to do the same dance of maintaining artistic integrity of their creations, whatever those might be, and also running a thriving venture back. So thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you, Christine. So let's start with giving listeners some context. I read Super Plastic described as many things. I, I read that it is a art toy creation company, a synthetic influencer studio, a designer toy movement, and a virtual celebrity agency. So Paul, in your words, how would you describe Superplastic? I'd say, it's, well, Superplastic is the first character universe that grew up on social media. And I should say the company was founded on the idea, well, it, the company was founded basically on, on a lot of ideas that came from earlier experiences I had, both with Hit Robot, an older company that I created, and Ello which was a social network and kind of the realization that the gatekeepers for animated content, I always just loved and wanted to do animation tended to be enormous studios or giant streaming companies. And that in the end, they generally end up owning the IP and they end up owning your characters and then they end up controlling them. And so super bat plastic was, well, how can we end up actually owning the characters we create ourselves, because that's where all the value is. We realized we could do that by skipping the gatekeepers and going around them by making characters super famous on social media. And once they're famous, we could do all kinds of crazy stuff, which is, I mean, really insane things, which is what we're doing right now. And a lot of it that makes money. Can you explain what characters make up your universe right now? Well, the best known are probably Janky, Googiemon, and Daisy. We also have Ghost Kids, Filthy and Lil Ill. Um, we have little helpers. We have bad sushi. We have, uh, there's, there's all kinds of, of characters running around that kind of sneak in in the background and cause trouble and do different things. So it really is the idea here is that everything's really interconnected and also, which is both, you know, great artistically and very practical on a business side. And how do you think about going deeper with the characters you already have versus spinning up new characters, influencers to achieve a, a persona or a goal? You used that word think in there. I don't know. I don't think at all. <laughs> I think that maybe we should have Jen might answer that one. <laughs> if <laughs> it's thinking, thought. that's where I come in. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a great question. And I, I feel and think that that's the fun of super plastic is that there's no playbook. And our opportunities will really also guide the need for new IP, the desire for cool, you know, fun new ideas for IP, 
but you know, by going into really a universe of characters, then the only limit is your imagination in the different types of adventures they can get into and the right format that those adventures play out across, whether that be a social platform like TikTok or Instagram or Twitch or a longer format, you know, TV series type of, of platform or, or anything else. You know, we yeah, may end up with a with a text-based character someday too. You never exactly. know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's just like, oh, that would be awesome. And then we do look at it and go like, oh, that would be stupid. Okay. What else is awesome? <laughs> and the fans decide too, right? Yeah, like, right. Exactly. you know, our teams come up with the ideas and put them out there and in ways that are totally mind-bendingly new. And then the fans latch on and, and find their own, you know, identities with them. And then we grow with those fans. I should say that, that Daisy has a pet and Panda Cat. And we just kind of added Panda Cat in the background. And people loved it, loved Panda Cat so much. So Panda Cat became this whole thing. So it, it kind of grows organically too. And when you say they loved it or they latched onto it, how are you internally reading those signals or how did you know they loved it? And how do you know they're latching onto something? I mean, really, that's the beauty of social media. Um, in rolling out new IP on TikTok or, or other social platforms, people will tell you. They'll tell you in the comment wells. They'll make their own content and share. You know, we had a, an interesting experience when we launched Ghost Kids, the filthy and little ill hip hop band this summer, where people went way down internet rabbit holes trying to figure out who they were and, you know, were they industry plants or were they real people or, you know, who were they? And people take it on and, and we watch all those signals and integrate that back into the, the creative stew. We should add there are 24 million of them. So they, yeah. you know, it's not hard to hear what's going on and growing about a million a month. Wow. Yeah. And that, that was my next body of questions is around social media, because as you said, you're native to something that is so mammoth and evolving. And Paul, you have said in interviews that you have this image or this vision of we can create our own animated characters and use social media to make those characters famous. And then once they're famous, they'll, you know, people will come to us and we can do what we want. But as a marketer myself, I appreciate how hard it is to bring the cult following to life. And so you're, you're expressing something that's quite difficult and making it sound quite easy. And so I am curious, tactically, how have you grown Super Plastics audience to such a scale and so quickly? Well, <laughs> part of it is just stupid luck. But I think a lot of it in real life is we, we love the creative we do. So the, everything comes back to making, just making stuff that's remarkable. And then at the same time, we have data. So if we do something that people hate, we know it fairly quickly. And then we can do something else we like. We, as a company, I think we shy away from doing stuff that we don't like that other people might, I guess. You know what I mean? Of the stuff that we mm -hmm. think sucks, but that maybe you could just go out and do just because it makes a ton of money. Mainly because I don't think that would make a ton of money in the end. It wouldn't. It wouldn't hold the attention of the creative team that actually makes all this stuff, which is not AI driven. Even though we have a lot of AI that we're working with now, so I think it's you know I think it's part of it's just intuition, having done this forever, and and a lot of it is data and hearing from hearing what people love and and being very 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 quick to change. I think we do a lot of iteration. When we learned, I learned a lot of that at Ello. We also learned a lot of that from people who make games. You know, we put stuff out, we see what sticks, we iterate. Look, if, you know, if 
people seem to really love having Janky have really have the shit kicked out of them by Googiemon. That just seemed to be real essential. And so we would just have, when that worked, we would have him kick the shit out of them another way, <laughs> you know, and over and over, over time. And, and it's interesting how these things in the end do tend to fall into, um, I don't know, it, it tends to be sort of iconic. A lot of what we do, and then you end up looking back in history and back in time mm. and entertainment and other characters. You're like, oh, that's not so different than, you know, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, or it's not so mm-hmm. different than the Cody and Roadrunner, you know? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, actually, that yeah. dynamic of Chase and... Yeah, or the Marx Brothers or Laurel and Hardy, mm-hmm. or even, and, and even a lot, a lot newer stuff, too, so... I was just going to add add to that, because I think what, what I found is so special at Super Plastic is exactly what Paul just described, that truly unique creative spark that makes a character, makes a set of characters, it makes this universe. And then it grows because people start to latch onto it and give feedback, but then come the partnership, right? So Janky mm-hmm. and Googie being featured in Fortnite added a new level of exposure or different audience. Mm-hmm. Selling the products in that core collector audience, you, you start to add these things. Mercedes-Benz comes on board, mm-hmm. you know, want to do characters. And, and they, they modeled for Gucci. And then we did product. Mm-hmm. We just delivered absolutely beautiful porcelain we made with Gucci and it's Jen with Jenkin Googiemon made with Gucci actually. So yeah, Jen's right. There's just all kinds of, we just dropped toys for the weekend and uh, mm-hmm. the characters you know, Jenky designed a toy with uh, Jay Balvin, mm-hmm. you know, so there's just, you know, it's just all this in the, and Paris Hilton and all these other people we've worked with really amazing people. Notice those incredible partnerships. And I think going to your point about as a team, really not wanting to put out things that you don't love. What are your brand values in terms of who you decide to work with? Because in some sense, your audience becomes merged with their audience. And how do you choose those people to bring these characters to that feel in line with your brand vision? Well, you know, partnership is really the way we built this company among all the other things. And so the great thing, of course, is that when you partner with someone that you love, they bring their followers along with them and we bring ours to them. So it's really, a, it often ends up being a pretty fair deal. But, you know, the nice thing about Janky is that Janky can model for Gucci and could promote chicken nuggets the next day. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just kind of built into that character. Googie Mon's mm-hmm. a little more complicated. Um, and Daisy as well. So I, the characters themselves really like, if you do something that's weak, you're destroying what you created. Mm-hmm. And so it's really kind of, it's kind of a balancing act, you know, and mm-hmm. trying to, and, and then it's not because you're just like, someone calls and you're like, hell yes. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> or no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that would be brand death right away, you know? And that's that tension of intuition and data. And so tell me about how you two work together now on that thinking and feeling side when you get those inbounds. I think there's obviously the binary, right? Like yes and no. But what if there's a judgment call? How do you decide that? I yell something out and Jen thinks about it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's our relationship, I guess. Yeah, probably. it's pretty perfect. I mean, that's kind of the fun thing too, is that, I mean, Paul just has the innate compass for what what is right and, and not as right. And if something's right, then obviously we're going to go full steam for it. And if something's maybe not as right, I come from a background of you know, sports and athletic endorsements. And so I can make a case for something. 
and we can, you know, see if it if it could make sense, or we bring in our new chief creative officer as well to kind of be the deciding vote, and he'll come up with some way to spin it, and and we figure it out. But the key thing is not to be attached. You really yeah. got to be willing to show up every day. I mean, I like I like to say really showing up every day as stupid as possible. You know, you just show yeah. up not you show up not knowing what's going mm-hmm. on and you might have a very strong opinion and then someone else just brings up something else and it's, you can't let go in half a second. You're really, you're a detriment to the process and, and mm-hmm. probably to the company, everything you're making. So I, you know, I can tell you, we, we've probably done about faces about, I don't know, every third day at the company probably mm-hmm. feels like hundreds of times on different, whether it's a toy project or it's something we're pretty deep into and we've invested a lot of time and money into. And then we all look at each other and go like, this is just not going to work. And we just pull mm. right away. And it's hard at first, I guess. I think if you've done a lot of stuff, I mean, Jen and I are both seniorish at this point. I think that a confidence sort of arises over time. Like there's always a solution. Always. There's always a creative so- solution. There's always a business solution. And you just keep looking. And so the only place you kind of can't do that is on a spreadsheet with numbers on mm-hmm. it, but you can do it everywhere else. And so generally there's a way to make, to make your way through. Well, and I think that's the fun part too, right? Is because even if we decide to do something, it still has to be the right deal. It still mm-hmm. has to promote our characters in ways that they are truly serving our characters as well. Mm-hmm. Because unlike maybe an athlete or a human influencer, we're there to really make it a two-way relationship and partnership. And so that becomes the fun part. And if halfway through the deal, the deal isn't really serving both those goals, then you know, to Paul's point, we're not attached. So we make the change. Mm-hmm. I think being native to social media yeah. seems like a forcing mechanism too, because it's evolving so fast and it moves where the zeitgeist is. My question was how since the beginning, even though you were native, you weren't native to TikTok, it didn't exist, right? So how has your team stayed on top of those macro channel shifts as they've evolved? And also how are you determining what character belongs sort of in certain channels because they have personas, certain personas work differently in different channels. So I'd love to understand how you've navigated. Jen, you want to talk about technology? Cause I think that's part of this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it, it starts with data for sure, but right as part of that, it's, it also starts with who the characters are and, and, you know, the paths that they're going to have. And some characters are more natural to certain platforms anyway. Mm-hmm. I think Janky and Googie were sort of perfectly natural to TikTok for a lot of reasons. But to your point, Christina, around the pace of culture, if you will, and being able to be on social and be reactive, that is where we're really investing in AI and other tech tools that can help us get our animation times at quality down to very quick turns. And we've instituted a new process where it used to take three weeks to do one TikTok video. Now we're doing two a week. And at two a week, you can actually start trends on TikTok or or capitalize on things. The same with YouTube. So how do we pick? It, it's art and science and a lot of who the characters can be. You know, music's massive on YouTube. Our music characters mm-hmm. will probably skew to YouTube. Gaming's massive on Twitch. The same kind of things, right? And the technology component also is, you know, traditionally animation is a pretty slow development process, right? I mean, you're making cartoons, but I mean, taking out a little bit of the type of stuff they do in South Park, there's almost no one out there that's making topical animation because it's so expensive and so difficult, but we actually create our own tech stack. So we could, we started out slow and over time we, 
we actually adapted existing technology, wrote our own code on top of it. And it's getting to be with AI, it's getting to be super interesting where stuff that used to take us weeks to do now we can do in hours. And that means that not only does it cut costs, but it means that the characters can be super responsive to what's going on out there. And that gets to be really, really, really fun. And it's super effective too, because it, it increases both your ability to, to iterate, but also to get, like dive into something that's going on that seems like it would, it, it matches who the characters are. And that's especially true for TikTok. You know, it, it sounds like you really have this balance between being data-driven, but also leading on the frontier, right? Creating trends. So can you talk to me about the team? Because the team is really making those calls on where are you leading? Where are you responding to? So will you tell me about the super plastic team? What does that look like? Well, there are children, there are adults on the team. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. No, you need the balance where you can go in and feel safe to just be totally insane. And you need someone who's holding and supporting all that, making sure that things that whatever you're doing also makes sense and that and that it doesn't fall apart. And um, Jen, you want to talk about the team? Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with a with a company ethos of being creatively led, right? So there is not a tension of, well, is data gonna rule or is creative gonna rule? We are straight from Paul, a creatively led company. And so from there, the team then really starts to fall along those lines. So our creative department, as I mentioned earlier, we have a new chief creative officer named Brian Scotto, comes from a more recently automotive lifestyle content and product company, but really came up through the music and magazine and pop culture scene of New York. And he leads his team and coordinates with Paul and really have their fingers on the pulse of culture, mm -hmm. right? We spend mm -hmm. a lot of time analyzing trends and what's happening on YouTube and TikTok and all the platforms. But our team is just curious in those mm -hmm. ways. And they're, you know, they're, they're of those platforms, not just using those platforms. Um, and then we have a, a rather young and very curious analytics team as well. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of times it's just like asking questions and then being curious enough to use the data to find the answers. And, and that's really the workflow that, that we continually refine, all of which then feeds into an incredibly dynamic animation squad that is actually quite small, but very mighty in that, you know, they do everything from the mocap animation capture itself to all the 3D rendering through the pipeline edits and outputs. And so it's, it's a, it, it, and it goes all the way through. I walked in the other day. And we have a relatively very new employee, very young, just out of school, who said, hey, I just did this. And they had just programmed this thing. And I was watching our characters, like, come out of AI. And it was seconds. It was taking seconds. And it wasn't quite perfect. The lobster kind of looked like a hot dog, a little bit. Yeah, but yeah it had, was, had a few too many legs. Yeah, it had a lot of legs. It was, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was more like, a, it was like an alien shrimp. Hot dog, but but uh, but it was getting there, and that was pretty amazing because that was mm. you know the point is to enable people to just kind of go and grab and do something, and then you know go screw up, just don't screw up twice the same way. It's the fun of the okay. tech too, right? Like when you're a creative led company like we are, tech is in service of the creative. Mm -hmm. So you have a creative idea, you want to tell a story, you want to you know set up an insane situation. Tech's going to facilitate that and do it you know faster, but at our quality level. That, the quality level was a question too, because I think at some point I read there was a basic tenant, like we, we don't accept things that are not really awesome. And I was curious, 
how, as you grow your team, do you maintain that awesome quality? Like how does the lobster get chipped because we're, we're experimenting or no, because it's not awesome yet? I just think everyone's looking and if something sucks, someone says it. I actually think suckiness is kind of objective. I don't mm. think it's a subjective thing. Um, when, you get, when you get a really good designer, you don't mm. know what they're going to make, but they kind of can't make things that aren't, you know, aren't great. Yeah. I mean, we make mistakes and we try different things, but I don't think like, you know, like say Noah who's, who, and Addie who do our, do our toys. I've never seen Noah do something bad. It doesn't mean we, mm-hmm. do, everyone makes everything that he makes, but he never presents something that isn't interesting. That is a consensus. I mean, and the nice thing about having lots of people around is we can have disagreement. The awful thing really is if you have one person making decisions, you end up with this sort of myopic problem. You know, you got one person in charge and, and it's just degrading. And I think that that's what happens when you're not listening. And culture is such a part of that too, right? Like people have to feel like they can be free to express those ideas and come up with stuff that may or may not work or may or may not seem off the wall and be encouraged to go even further in that. And and I think that's that's certainly the culture that I noticed when I first met Paul and the team and, and hope to just continue to build on. It sounds like inherent to that creative boundary pushing is safety, right? That there is safety in the culture to make mistakes, maybe not twice, but that fear isn't driving those decisions. As a culture, did you codify that such that people can live within that freedom? Well, it's interesting, but I, I think that it has to do with what those of us who are actually running or managing things, it's how we mm-hmm. react, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I think that really, that's what creates the culture. I mean, we have this wheel. Um, it looks a little bit like a little wheel, fortune wheel, and it's called the fuck up wheel. If you fuck up and you take responsibility for your fuck up, but you have to take total responsibility for it. You have to say what you mm-hmm. did, how you screwed up. You can't blame anyone. You can't make any excuses at all. Even if it wasn't completely your fault, you still have to take responsibility. And if you do that, then you spin the wheel and then there's all this awesome stuff. There's great stuff on there. Like, you know, like. $200 gift certificate to take you out to dinner or a new pair of sneakers or, you know, just, and part of it is I think I've spun that wheel more than anyone else in the mm. company. And, you know, it's good to encourage people to make mistakes. And I, a lot of mistakes, probably it's the fault of management for either hiring the wrong person or putting them in the wrong position. And that mm-hmm. includes someone who's just not taking responsibility, which happens now and then, or, or toxic culture and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like when, when I was CEO, I felt like, Everything at the company was my responsibility, even the mistakes, even things mm. I didn't know about. And I know Jen really acts the same way. Fortunately, I'm not CEO anymore, so now Jen has to do a lot of that kind of stuff. <laughs> you got to start spinning that wheel. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I think that's part of it, really. And, and, and it's a general vibe. And a lot of this stuff, it has to come out of who you are, mm-hmm. who you're trying to be. You know, And the nice thing is once you get it, you can be it. Yeah. And unified is such an an interesting term in culture in a company, because there's no doubt there are certain values that are just deeply held around creativity and, and safety for that. But there's also so much that is impacted every day, is reiterated and reinforced through small actions of our leadership team, for example. It's really important to me that we have a strong group of heads of departments and leaders that act as a team themselves, because they also are very important in helping set the culture every day of, you know, how we take a risk on something or calculate the value of something and and that kind of stuff. So I think it's all the way through and it's also every day in addition to 
what Paul said. How do you make sure that as you hire, those you're bringing on will also reflect that or be aligned with that? Because it seems like a very special thing and a very important thing to your brand and business. And so I was curious in your hiring practices, how do you make sure that that isn't just because you've been there a long time, but you're actually bringing in people who can embody those same cultural values? In my experience, the only way to do it is to be very explicit about it. Mm -hmm. And that every time someone is interviewing someone, you know, it is also about sharing the, the culture and the values and questioning how do they act? How are they most safe? I should say, like, mm -hmm. how are they most free to express themselves? How do they operate in a group? And just being really explicit about it in, in every step of the process. Some of it's also gut feel. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, that tension of gut and data or, you know, feeling and thinking feels like a, a real theme in this space. One thing that, that I did read, Paul, was that you yourself are not on social media personally. And yeah. that was curious to me. And I, I wondered if you would speak to why that was. Yeah, I'm not on social media. You won't find, I mean, you may find some accounts out there, but they're not mine. I'm not on any platforms at all, and I don't spend a lot of time looking at it. Um, I don't know. For me, I don't need that. That's not where my inspiration comes from. And we have enough people around in the company who really, really deeply into that. So I, I don't know how to, I don't, it, this is not something that's easy to describe, but I, I just don't need it. I am kind of like been doing creative stuff for so long. I have, there is just an endless well. And that well is inspired often by the people at the company. And if we need something for TikTok, we'll go, how about this? And they'll go, no, no, that's a dumb. How about this? Oh, my God, that's amazing. You know what I mean? And and so that's just how I work personally. I I find spending a lot of time on social media exhausting and anti-creative and anti in a lot of ways. It just, it doesn't take a lot, you know. And I, And by the way, I do end up seeing a lot of what's going on through the everything when I need to, but I don't, I don't spend hours staring at things. I somehow I just find that it just shuts me down. It's too much, but this is my process and I'm unique. We're all different. And we do have people at the company who are just obsessed, totally obsessed. And that works for them too. So it's a balance and we're a team anyway. Will you tell me about the wells that you do go into for inspiration? Where do you find those offline? Off I mean, I spent so much time in my life in popular culture, in fashion and movies and in old movies and what was popular. I mean, I've been right now, I'm obsessed with Fritz Lang. So I'm going through old silent films, a lot of those. They're dark, man. They're super fucked up. A lot of that stuff can translate right into what we're doing. You know, and so I'll take it, I'll take inspiration from things that are all over the map, you name it. And then I bring that in. And I think that that enriches the process. Well, I know it does actually. Yeah. For me, it's, I'm very visual. So I love fashion. I just love mm -hmm. how watching people dress up. I think it's mm -hmm. completely silly. You know, I love old movies from the sixties and the seventies and the eighties. And I mean, I was going to watch Hong action movement is still in the theater with subtitles before anyone had heard about that in the U.S. We used to go down to Chinatown in San Francisco when I was a kid to do that. So it's not that I'm outside the culture. I'm just doing it at a different pace, a frantic pace. I, I find it discouraging because I, I find that like one of the keys of creativity is dealing with fear. 
right? I think you brought that up, right? Fear shuts us down. It completely shuts everything down. So how you deal with fear, I've got my own way of dealing with it, which is mainly to just welcome it. So when it shows up, I go, hello, fear. It's all good, man. I'm here with you. And then I let it go. And actually, when we tend to be creating and doing stuff, I'm in the room, usually just completely beyond not worrying about anything at all. But I do find that like an oversaturation of stuff minds start to really get hooked in comparison and comparing mm-hmm. ourselves and are we good enough and there's always someone out there that just seems so amazing and to me that can be really discouraging so the less i know the more i'm just able to just throw stuff out there again if you if you go down too many rabbit holes in research and study mm-hmm. and whether that study is you know tiktok or, or whether it's you know, every horror movie because you're writing something about horror after a while you you sort of lose the fire and, and it can be discouraging because there's always like something out there. This is going to blow your mind. You know, like I can never make the first Halloween movie. We're working on horror stuff, for example, you know, an amazing movie. I think this idea of there's benefit to being an insider, there's benefit to being an outsider was another thing that I was thinking about because I noticed that you all are located in different places. And I wondered how you think about co-location versus remote, also being sort of in urban centers and being outside and the benefit across those dimensions for a creative company and how that's evolved over time. What do you think, Jen? I mean, I think it's evolving. This time last year, this was a company almost 100% based in, in Vermont and a lot of great talent that had moved to Vermont, right? So you can import great talent and you can also find talent in a lot of places. And I think given the level of quality and the level of creativity that we really pride ourselves on and and are growing, we're really looking for the best talent and we're able to adapt the workflows with digital tools and different things to accommodate wherever they may be. They're in New Zealand. That might be a little more challenging on the time change, but I'm sure we'd figure it out if it was the right person. (laughs) I find working remote less optimal a lot of the time. Um, but as Jen said, you know, there is a balance to the whole thing. I, I prefer having everyone in one place. And we were all in Vermont mainly because we had a pandemic. It was easy to get people to move for a while. And we were, I think we were in a sort of embryonic state of figuring out what the hell we were doing. It was, I think during that period, it was great that we were all together. But once things are moving, it, it feels, it feels like if the workflows are there and the people are right, it can work. Many creative people say co-location allows for just a dynamism at remote doesn't necessarily have. So if people are not co-located, do you have some rituals that you do to bring together people kind of, and how do you build that into the company now in 2023? So we're working through that. I mean, you know, as we build this out and as we have more people, not in Burlington, but let's start within, within Vermont. I mean, there's a lot of fun intra-company events and team building and that happen weekly within the office. We also use our office as sort of the epicenter. So at least twice now, we've had the leadership team on site for a week at a time so that leadership gets to all be together, be with their teams. You know, we have dinners and other things like you would. Going forward, I think we will end up having a pretty regular cadence of offsites and different things. Whether those always happen in Vermont, maybe not. It'll depend what the, you know, what the best subject is for that offsite, but that is usually in a remote or co-located situation. The best is to be able to come together in person for at least some amount of time, semi-regularly. I feel like your your commitment to autonomy is really interesting in the venture back space. And so I'd like to touch on that. You 
Paul in 2021 had said that um, had said no to many studios. Um, you had said that the company had this tenant where you're building this weird Disney Redux with these really weird characters and you're going to control everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you announced your Series A partnership with Amazon Studios. And you had said, you know, you were excited because it would allow you to reach massive audience and provide a new playground where you could wreak havoc worldwide. And I was both struck by the words Amazon Studio and wreaking havoc, like in the same sentence. But also, (laughs) also, if there was an evolution in your thinking there, or were you able to negotiate terms that actually allowed you to maintain consistency from that previous statement around controlling everything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's completely consistent. We said no to studios over and over and over because... They wanted the stupid studio deal. A stupid studio deal is, oh yeah, we'll make a show with you. You have to, you have to sell us your characters essentially or license them. And it's the same as selling and we control them and we'll tell you how much money you get and we'll decide everything that you do with them. And we kept saying no. And I should say Amazon was amazing. They came basic thing was you have to treat our characters like actors. What's the difference? You know what I mean? Like you're not like going to go walk down the street and see name your celebrity you know what i mean like in your coffee shop very often and most of the time you're interacting with them on screen anyway mm-hmm. and you know losing control meant a massive devaluation of what we're doing and um the loss of the ability to integrate what we're doing which is so mm-hmm. important so that we can do things like make a toy and make a video and do live experiences and do gaming and do NFTs when we were doing that and did I say TV show and movie already clothing and apparel and whatever. And all those things, one of the reasons we can grow so fast is because we control the integration of all, all those different channels and social media at the same time. And so Amazon was, was with, uh, with the deal that we wanted, basically. I mean, I said, so we control our characters. I mean, Jenkins and Googiemon are in shows with Amazon, but they're also out doing all kinds of other stuff. And we don't have to ask their permission. And that, to me, was super, super, super important. And I should say that from the very start of this company, um, even when we had no money and no power and no one knew who we were, my attitude has always, and this is something I, I do tell other people that, that, that start companies, you know, or, or that are creative people that are creating things, that you can go in with the attitude that what you're making is so awesome and you are so awesome that I'm only going to work this way or I'm not going to work at all. And on my, personally, it's not worth it to me otherwise. Like, it's not worth it to me personally at this point in my career, but it's also not worth it to us on the business side to do something half-assed. It's just bad business. And so we go into every meeting and every negotiation and everything like we deserve the best deal possible. And we figure out what that is with a partner. If it doesn't work, we walk away. Amazon has, has been absolutely fantastic to work with. They've used... I would say the lightest touch with us and they trust us and are just letting us do our thing. And again, you know, a lot of the time you ask something about partnership and when you partner with a brand and you're doing something like what we're doing, I think one of the questions I like to ask is, are we doing the brand or is the brand doing us? Because if the brand's doing us, we shouldn't do that. That's not, it tends to be not cool. But if we're doing the brand, that is that we're the ones fundamentally doing something and the brand's attaching to it because we're rad and we're continuing what we would be doing anyway, then it's a great partnership. 
I mean, the best ones of all were like Gucci was amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, they're just an incredible, they're incredible people to work with. They're a wonderful brand and the stuff we made together was great really great stuff. And and what's happening at Amazon is exactly the same thing. What I like about them is they seem to be willing to oddly take bigger risks in content because um, they have less, I don't know, I think it feels like Apple's sort of decided we're going to be, and Disney, you know what I mean? They're a little prissy Mm -hmm. and we're kind of out there on the edge. We're actually not on the edge. We're right in the center of culture, to tell you the truth. It's just that if you've been in the old center of culture, the edge is the new center and things move mm-hmm. quite fast. And so actually, I think we're not really that edgy a brand. I mean, people like our, our characters are likable. That's one of the things. They're way, they're way weird. They do insane stuff, but everyone loves them. And that's, that was one of the things. And that's really different than, you know, I think it's actually fairly easy to make a short-lived piece of IP that's mean. Being mean is easy. You know what I mean? Interesting the idea that they are both <laughs> beloved and beloved and naughty. There's something about that again, another tension around what makes them so likable, but also they're not necessarily conforming with what our lives look like every day, right? And there's something really interesting to people about that. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I should you can edit this out or not, but I'll say that my reaction to Donald Trump is not political. I just think he's a jerk. And I don't like jerks. I don't work with jerks. So it's nothing to do with the politics. And so, and I feel like the opposite is true for what we're building. We're building something mm-hmm. that's really honestly based in love. And people love our character. They dress up like our characters. They get tattoos of them. They, they, but they get nice tattoos of them. They're not like mean tattoos. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I did have a question around what advice you know, would you have to, to new founders? But it sounds like from what you just said, really having a deep sense of value, even at the beginning, before you have power and defining what that is to you and maintaining your commitment to it, as well as making things that people love, whatever that looks like. I was struck by that in reading about your characters that they're beloved and sounds like that's been part of your lasting allure as well, is that there is love behind them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how we hire people. We like too. I met Jenna. I was like, oh, you're amazing. <laughs> we have to work together. Let's talk about that because that is something creative founders both may aspire to getting a gen or they may be asked to get a gen. It could go both ways. So <laughs> let's talk about how you knew it was time to bring on um, a partner and then Jen, how you knew this was the right next step for you. Well, for me, I had some health challenges. It took me away from work for a little while and in the process of coming back in, realized that that I needed help with figuring out the next steps of how to actually run things and do things well and make the right decisions. And I, I felt too close to the company. And none of us have all the greatest talents. And Jen has, I don't know, Jen's a, almost a perfect compliment. Jen seems to be able to do everything I can much better. <laughs> so it just it just felt like the company would benefit from, as I said, like at one point, you know, it feels like we have to be able to hold the childlike energy that we have that allows us to create and make all this great stuff, but we still have to pay the rent and the trains have to run on time and all that kind of stuff. And you can't just get someone in there that's just going to, you know, it's like an, uh, like an army sergeant either. You need someone who really understands 
creativity and yet can facilitate and make everything move. And I think Jen has come in and kind of made everything sparkle. I feel like we, we've always been somewhat grown up, but really help us grow the next step level in the grown up side of our business. And that actually allows for the more playful side. It actually creates more space, interestingly. I mean, you need a good container to play in, a good solid one. So I think Jen's here kind of really taking care of that. And I personally just was finding it very difficult after a while to, to wear both hats, to wear the creative hat and the hat that had to say no at the same time. And I can do that. But after a while, you start to go a little crazy because part of you is like, hell yes, we have to do this. The other half of you is like, we can't afford that. I mean, I knew as soon as I met Paul and we started talking on Zoom, I, you know, I, I had known enough about Super Plastic at that time, thought it was really interesting. The brand and the characters were really interesting coming from such a heavy sports background as I had, I was like, well, this is, you know, sports is IP. This is IP, but you have really full control and ownership over it. And I thought I could bring some complementary skills to what Paul, who Paul is and what he had built. And I mean, we hit it off immediately. And for me, it's also so fun to be able to learn from someone every day. So sure, I wear a lot of hats. I have to say no a lot and, and organize things. But every time I talk to Paul, I feel like I learn something. And, you know, I learn from the whole company every day. And so in just even in a short time, it's already been like the most incredible place to be. Jen, how did you know that you would be set up for success, that that hat would be given to you versus perhaps there being sort of constant struggle for, for operators going into a role where they're going to work hand in hand with the founder, especially a creative founder, was that intuition? Were there kind of signs that you really be a team? I mean, we explicitly talked about it pretty much from the first conversation we had, even though I, I was very much in the interview process, right? Um, but then it, we were very explicit about talking about it. But I think the other side of it too is it, it just sort of feels like a natural compliment. Paul in the creative role, me in the in the business role. And I feel like personally, I thrive in working with creative people. My dad was an architect. I grew up around it, you know, and, and the last money I ran also had two creative founders that I joined as sort of the business CEO. And it's a role that comes naturally to me. But also, I understand that my purpose is to make it possible for us to do even more creative things. Um, I always told Paul, like, for him to go have the fun again. And, and I'll take the business side. Nice, because we said to each other the things that I think we each wanted to hear. As I said, I'm not going to be in your way. In fact, I can get right out of your way. I won't be second guessing any. And I think I tried, I even tried to do that in emails. I say things yeah. like, very consciously, like, if you agree, you know, I'd like to buy a new keyboard, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. But, but I think it's really important to understand roles and I, and again, man, it's just goes back also to hiring. It's hire people that work with people that know already know they're okay. Jen knows she's okay, and I know I'm okay. So if everything falls apart, we're already okay. It takes a lot of the fear out of the equation, and then we just get to do the fun part, which is working even when it's hard, even if you you have to make really tough decisions one day, even when that. The strain, the stress sort of isn't quite there in the same way when it isn't like your whole survival. It's more like, oh, I'm okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's all right. So I felt that from Jen right away. I was like, this person's great. I agree. I felt the same. I was like, okay, we're in this together then. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be mindful of time. I really appreciate you 
taking the time. I thank you, I think, too, for modeling the innovation and the safety required for people to create. And I hope that those listening can also be inspired by creating spaces where business and creativity can merge and flourish. And really, I wish you all the best and all the things to come. Awesome. Thank you, Christina. Yeah. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. Fun. So thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Christina. Take okay. care. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.